Hi everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of my new weekly film review podcast. My name is Edward James Beasley, and I am, among other things, an audiobook producer and film fanatic. And I've decided that it's high time that I merge these passions to share my own thoughts and reflections on the latest cinematic and streaming releases. As anyone who knows me will attest to... I'm a bit of a cineholic, and it's not unusual to find me having spent my entire day travelling between two or three of London's best cinemas to catch as many films as possible in one day. Honestly, it does baffle a lot of people, including my partner who doesn't quite understand why I would so willingly spend eight hours a week or more in a darkened room, but ultimately I just simply love cinema. And I might have a touch of the compulsive element. It's definitely not unknown for me to get a tad anxious at the thought of missing a new release. So, what can you expect from this series? Well, each week I'll be taking a look at two or three current and new releases in the UK or on streaming services. I can't always promise that they'll be the absolute newest releases, but they will either still be in cinemas or have been released recently on a streaming platform such as Netflix. I'll also take a look at the trailers for upcoming releases and share my thoughts on these, as I really believe that movie trailers are an art form unto themselves, of which the quality can be measured almost entirely independently of the film. I'll do my best to link back to this in future episodes when I come to review the films themselves. I'll talk about how the full movie lived up to the trailer, or if my expectations were met, disappointed, or straight up subverted. Now, I want to keep in mind that every film review is going to be subjective, so I'm laying myself out here for critique as well. However, in all honesty, I do respect the institution of critics, and while I frequently disagree with certain reviews... I'm always more likely to be looking at any film's average Metacritic score rather than, say, its IMDb user rating. Does that make me stuck up and a sheep to the critic community's whims? Maybe, but I hope not. Although possibly rather narcissistic and a little bit conceited, I'll also try to bring some of my own person into these reviews and give some really out-and-out subjective responses to the films. Studying this podcast in and of itself is a bit of an act of self-therapy for me, and without getting bogged down in my own psychology, I do want to sometimes bring things around to how I relate to them as an individual. So, for episode one, we have a two-film review. First up is Dexter Fletcher's biography of Elton John, Rocket Man, starring Taron Egerton as the rock and roll icon. Taking a rather substantial detour in genre and tone, the second film reviewed will be director Ari Aster's follow-up to 2018's highly praised horror, Hereditary. Midsummer sees the director setting out more tense subversions as we follow a group of unwitting friends as they visit a traditional Midsummer festival in a small Swedish village where, surprise surprise, everything may not be as innocent and friendly as it seems. So first up we have Rocket Man. This is a film that loosely follows Elton John's life and career from his childhood right up until, well, kind of circa 1983. That's not entirely clear, and I'll come on to that a bit more later. 
The film starts with Elton going into rehab in the 80s, in which he takes part in a group therapy and kind of unloads on everybody else in the room. It's from here that we start with flashbacks of Elton's early life and then go into his startings as a career as a musician, how he met Bernie Taupin, uh, his relationship with people in the music industry and his struggles with alcohol, depression, drugs, etc. So the film starts out with Elton as a child growing up in Pinner in northwest Greater London. This is a kind of, um, it's an interesting start. So what we kind of have with this film is it's, it's, it's almost a musical. It's, it, it kind of hints at it. It doesn't really go full on, but um, the film has these kind of elements in it where each kind of chapter is, is bookended by a kind of a song number. And it's one of, going to be one of Elton's songs where they've decided that the lyrics of it kind of fit the, um, the scene at that moment. And there were a lot of these big dance numbers and musical numbers in the film. And they really they really kind of bookend each of the chapters and it'll start going into a song. Generally, Elton or one of the other characters will kind of break into one of Elton John's more famous songs that kind of fits the, the narrative and the, that bit of plot in that moment. Um, it starts out kind of acceptable, I, I thought, and kind of liked some of it. Um, but it does becomes very formulaic quite quickly and it becomes very obvious that these are they're almost in lieu of saying you know one year later or six months later or something like that they become a bit hackneyed and a little bit contrived I thought but we go back to Elton's early life we see his kind of upbringing his relationship with his mum and his dad and his grandmother there's a lot of this it, the film really does focus quite heavily on his relationships without going into an awful lot of detail for most of them because this is a two-hour film uh, and there's a lot of a lot of life that's covered in this which it's it's kind of places a little bit of a weakness I think of the film uh, it's difficult to kind of really get those relationships in uh, in such a short space of time uh, it's interesting so we have Taron Egerton as uh, Elton John himself and Bryce Dallas Howard plays his mother Sheila um, which is a kind of an interesting bit of casting, I think. I'm not necessarily particularly obvious. It's not especially usual to have uh, American actors play those kinds of roles in what is British film. But the whole, the whole scene itself is uh, all, all of that experience in uh, in kind of Northwest London at that time is incredibly quintessentially British. So it's quite interesting to to, to have that and not perhaps an, an expected bit of casting. That being said, that's a complete double standard because if there were uh, a British actor playing Elvis Presley's uh, mum in, in a biopic, which apparently Baz Luhrmann's working on, I, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't blink twice, wouldn't think anything of it. Uh, so that that's maybe a bit of a, an unfair double standard. So we go on from Elton's early life and we follow his career. We follow him meeting Bernie Taupin, kind of being set up by... Um, the um the record label at the time he's sort of given these lyrics meets up with bernie and says oh you know these are great i can i can make music to all of these uh, and it kind of follows their relationship for quite a long time in, the, in kind of the second act of the film uh, it's very much about them as partners them as friends and that is the most developed relationship throughout the entire film uh Jeremy bell plays uh, Bernie Taupin, it's quite a good performance. I, th- I think the two of them have quite a good uh, chemistry together and it is kind of a believable friendship. I think it, it's it's more believable, more complex than than any of the others, which are, are very, like his relationship with his father is very, you could sum it up in a sentence, uh, similarly really to his mother, um, to John Reed, the manager to, with whom he had a, a relationship. Most of those are far more simplistic. Uh, it's the relationship with Bernie Taupin that's perhaps the most uh, the most interesting 
And of course, we follow Elton into stardom, into um, becoming a huge hit. And then the kind of obvious pitfalls that go along with that and all the trappings of drugs and ego and alcohol and all of those things that suck Elton down, uh, lead to him becoming incredibly depressed and uh, and unhappy, uh, kind of being taken advantage of by other people in the music industry, and then follow through to his kind of redemption on the other side, getting clean and, and a kind of return to form. It really is a very predictable plot in that sense. I mean, I know it's obviously based around uh, an actual life, but all of these kind of music biopics often really follow that, that same path. It's always like becoming famous, becoming too famous, having problems, having, you know, generally kind of ego problems or drug and alcohol problems, hitting rock bottom, and then coming up redemption up the other side. And this film completely follows that. One of the big issues with it is, I mean, obviously, uh, to anyone who knows, Elton John wrote music to Bernie Taupin's lyrics. And that's a relationship the two of them have had since really Elton John started out on his own as a musician the whole thing of this kind of it's not a deliberate thing but it seems a little bit as though Elton basically he's coming up with these lyrics on the spot because they're fitting in with what's going on in in his life at that moment so he's thinking say Tiny Dancer and it, it, it seems as though it's coming to him at the time and he's kind of like okay this is happening in my life right now and these these lyrics fit that but you know Elton John didn't write those lyrics and Elton John isn't a lyricist and thus it seems a bit disingenuous almost that it kind of seems like the the songs are, are coming to him at the time maybe that's not quite fair there's actually one scene where bernie starts singing uh, goodbye yellow brick road which kind of relates to the to the scene at that point and actually that's far more effective because he did write those lyrics and actually that that gives quite an interesting spin on it because basically the scene sets up his frustration with elton at that point in his life the obvious comparisons for this film are going to be with other music biopics and obviously a very big one uh, is Bohemian Rhapsody that came out last year and the comparisons are going to be inevitable partly because Dexter Fletcher for anyone who doesn't know took over the direction of Bohemian Rhapsody from Brian Singer it's not entirely clear how much of that film Dexter Fletcher was responsible for but I'd imagine quite a lot of the editing especially and the latter parts of the uh, of the production of the film and it's absolutely easy to see comparisons between that and Rocket Man, and I think they both kind of have the same pitfalls, in my opinion. They both try and cover too much. They cover too large a period of time in an artist's life. When that happens, things become they become too formulaic. Relationships get very oversimplified, and you end up with all these kind of set pieces of like, oh, and this is this is how I wrote this song, and it just so fitted in at this particular point, and they start to become a bit unbelievable. I think films are quite often more interesting when we have a very short period of time, something maybe sort of specific incidents, where you have these films that set out such a kind of a large portion of someone's life. It's it becomes a bit of a kind of lifetime TV movie esque element to it that I don't know, kind of makes the film feel a bit cheap almost. But one quite interesting comparison between Bohemian Rhapsody is that there's a repetition of character. Um, which I didn't quite realise actually until going back and uh, and looking into it. But one fairly large character in Rocket Man is John Reed, who was Elton John's manager for quite a long period of time. But the two were also lovers for an estimate of about sort of five years before suffering a kind of breakup. But John Reed continued to be his manager. Um, Reed in the film is is really painted in uh, a very unpleasant light. Reed is sort of this kind of 
insensitive sort of uses Elton initially initially kind of seduces him but then it's sort of this whole thing of well he's not even capable of love he's just a kind of businessman who who's taking advantage of people and and doing what have you interestingly the part in this in, in rocket man is played by richard mcfadden who people will of course know from game of thrones and bodyguard and interestingly i hadn't realized but the uh, john reed actually also featured in bohemian rhapsody and he was queen's manager for about three years and in that film he was played by aiden gillen also of game of thrones fame it's very different kind of performance in in bohemian rhapsody i think john reed is more just sort of painted out as he's very much a manager he wants to kind of make as much money out of the band and make them as successful as possible which in the film is supposed to really irk freddie mercury and he has a massive falling out and fires him without consulting the rest of the band which apparently did not happen but he's less of a kind of there's less of his kind of personal element in this it's interesting that the age gap between Aidan Gillen uh, and Richard McFadden is about 20 years not quite but almost Uh, and at that time we're looking at similar periods in the 70s uh, and Richard McFadden is far far closer to the the actual age of John Reed at that time than Aidan Gillen but it's an interesting comparison. Uh, and yeah, I think it, it does give an example of how, how some of the characters are, are really kind of... He's very much sort of turns into this antagonist figure. I don't know how fair that is. I, I, I couldn't find anything on, on John Reed himself, having any kind of feedback on the film. But it's interesting because it's not specifically said, but it does give the implication that John Reed must have been some sort of not very nice figure who Elton John would have cut out of his life, you know, upon getting... Uh, getting sober and you know re- reigniting his career but actually he was he was Elton John's manager until 1998 when apparently the two did have a very significant falling out and Elton John fired him one interesting element of rocket man which is very very different to bohemian rhapsody is the kind of chronology of the film bohemian rhapsody is is very clear in its order of things you know kind of roughly what time period it is there's there's always kind of elements of like oh they're releasing this song now they're releasing this is when they're making this album this is when they're making the next album Uh, you know this is when they're doing this live performances when they're doing live aid by comparison rocket man is a bit of a mess really um probably intentionally there's almost absolutely no mention at any point in the film perhaps save when elton john's a child that you actually are told what year it is except for his debut album. There's not really any, this is when I'm releasing this. And it's it's very much a bit of a mess. Uh, the songs are kind of played and, and quoted and sung really throughout the film and kind of gives this impression that Elton John had kind of written all his major hits before he even released his first album, which is obviously not correct. And just even looking at the chronology of his, of his single releases, because I'm not a huge Elton John fan by any means. I don't dislike him, but I, I don't own any Elton John records, for example. So I'm not super familiar. I'm not going, oh, OK, this is this time, this is that time. But it's, it's kind of a, a mush of stuff from well, the late 60s and early 70s right up to kind of the mid 80s, maybe. But it's it's really all a kind of blended together to kind of fit the narrative of the film uh, rather than chronologically setting out his life. Really, the only thing you can take away uh, to, to kind of identify anything is what people are wearing at any given time. That might be a bit of a clue as to when the film is set. But uh, e- even that, it, it, it's not really definitive. I think the worst part of the film, which really does kind of show where narrative has, has taken a front seat plot, is... Uh, in, in representing Elton's marriage to uh, Renate Blau, which is in the film for about two scenes. It doesn't fit in the film, and it's so shoehorned in 
I think is a kind of well Elton John got married to a woman even though he was a gay man this 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 is this was kind of important what was going on in his life at this point we need to uh, we need to put that in there we can't sidestep that that's a that's a bit of his life and it's just really badly done I don't know I, it, it could well be that a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor and there may have been a lot more to it than that but it, it you have no idea why Elton John married this woman it's sort of he meets her in the recording studio uh, then we have a little bit of a song, which again doesn't, you know, it doesn't provide any insight. And then we have them getting married, and then sort of one scene, and then they're like, "Oh well, that was a mistake," which makes it seem as if the marriage lasted for a week before Elton kind of sobered up and was like, "Oh wait, I'm gay," which is not the case at all. They were married for four years, and they were also married kind of later, from 1984 to 1988, which is really kind of after the film at least gives the impression that it's finishing the kind of plot of the film and, and, and the journey that Elton takes is is really quite contrived. You'll you'll have seen it in almost every other kind of major music biopic from Walk the Line to Bohemian Rhapsody to Ray. It's, it is always this kind of element of uh, starting out getting big, getting big, having success. The success goes to your head. You get embroiled in, in drugs and sex and ego. You fall out with people. Everything kind of comes crashing down. When you hit rock bottom, there's kind of a, a step and... and, and to get better and and you know get clean as retribution uh, and you come up the other side of it and and i don't know if in fairness that is a cliche of cinema or a cliche of musicians of that era it's it's interesting to note that the um the rights to doing an Elton John biopic seem to have been passed around from sort of the er- earlier on in this decade. Uh, Michael Gracie, the director of The Greatest Showman, apparently wanted to make a film version of this in 2012 with Tom Hardy as Elton John. And apparently Elton John around this period also decided that his choice for the role was Justin Timberlake. Absolutely cannot see that. I can't think of anything Justin Timberlake's acted in that would give me uh, a sense that he would have been even vaguely good in the role, but I guess you will never know. However, I would say Taron Egerton is... Uh, it really he, he really does look the part in this, um, which is kind of surprising. I didn't necessarily see it beforehand, but the, the makeup's really good. The costumes are fantastic. I think it's really one of the, the highlights of the film are the, are the costumes. And I don't just mean that in terms of Elton's uh, very famous kind of flamboyant costumes and dresses and get up that that he wore on stage uh i do i do mean even the sort of supporting characters what they're wearing that's very the the wardrobe's fantastic it's really super reflective there's a lot of stuff in there i go crikey i mean i'm not that i I wasn't around at the time but there were certainly things i'm like yeah i remember my grandparents having things like that or "Mm, i remember uh my parents having a sofa that probably came from the 1970s which definitely was sort of had the same material as that jacket Elton John's wearing I'm sure if my parents see the film they'll know exactly which jacket I'm referring to but yeah Taron Egerton it's it's a good performance it, it's it's strong uh, I don't know how much of kind of after effects and, and things there were to his to his singing but yeah definitely it definitely sounds like Elton John and yeah no it's it's good I think he, he captures the kind of the kind of duality of Elton John as a person I, I, I found it interesting because I don't think... I'm not entirely sure that I've seen Taron Egerton in a film before. He just has been in almost exclusively in things that I, I would not bother watching, uh, be that the Kingsman films or the apparently super awful Robin Hood film that he made recently. It's it's kind of interesting that he's he's not really had a huge number of hits and yet he's managed to kind of maintain that kind of headlining starring role spot and yeah, he he is he is good in this. I I I I would would absolutely give him that. For anyone who doesn't know me, which you know, hopefully is nigh on everyone who's listening, I am am from Watford, 
originally, and um, Elton John is from Pinner. Uh, they're pretty pretty close together. Now, Watford has a football club, uh, of which Elton John has been a, a huge supporter. Uh, he's been the chairman of, I believe he still has some kind of lifelong honorary position within within the football team. It's just kind of interesting, because I, I think that I would see that as being a pretty big part of Elton John's life I, I think there's something that's obviously been very important to him and it's just is, is no there's absolutely zero mention of it in the film there is one very small visual reference to it when during one of these kind of uh, musical song numbers where he's sort of uh, being told you know you should live extravagantly by John Reed and he's uh, you know picking up a football and sort of being kicked to win by these players in yellow shirts with a hornet on them definitely not an actual Watford football club Shirt. Don't know if there were some issues with uh, with rights there, but um, I I'm, I was surprised that it wasn't it wasn't even paid lip service to. There wasn't even like a little bit of a mention to when obviously this was something that was fairly important to Elton John's life. But that's a uh, maybe a bit of a, a subjective thing for me, and 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 perhaps it really does not um, help uh, move the narrative of the film along at any rate. So overall, it's it's not a bad film. It's definitely it's got things that I I thought were very good. It wasn't boring. I wasn't sort of twiddling my thumbs. It, the pace of it is is good. It ticks along. There's too much in it, I think, and there's too many relationships. And I think there's an oversimplification. And I, I'm not sure the kind of blending together of his life for me. It was just it wasn't too stylized enough. It wasn't. It was. It should have been a little bit more of a musical if it was going that way. It should have been a little less realistic if it was if it was going in that direction. Uh, it kind of walked the line between the two and, and became kind of neither. But but overall, it is entertaining. If you like Elton John's music, uh, I mean, that's featured in it very well. And yeah, it's a good central performance. It's a reasonably fun film. I wouldn't necessarily say you absolutely got to see it. If you don't like Elton John, you probably won't enjoy it. I don't mind Elton John. Therefore, you know, that didn't really impact it one way or the other. This is a film that has been out for a few weeks now, but it's still, uh, it's still on in cinemas uh, across the country, I think. I hope I haven't put people off it too much. It's it's not it's it's not a bad film. I I just found that there were a lot of holes that I could pick into it. So the next film is Midsummer, and this is director Ari Aster's follow up to Hereditary, which came out last year, which was really quite critically acclaimed as being a kind of a fantastic new horror film. I, I feel like a lot of the time when you get a, a really good horror film or, um, you know, one that's different enough, that you'll be told that the director is is the saviour of, of horror cinema. And I think director Ari Aster has got that mantle. And this is his quite anticipated follow-up to Hereditary. I'll be honest, Hereditary was a film that was very well critically received, incidentally had a fantastic trailer, but I wasn't 100% sold on it. Um, there were certain elements of it that I thought didn't really work. There was not enough ambiguity to the film, I think. Uh, and it didn't perhaps really leave me feeling scared or disturbed or leaving me with any kind of lingering sense of being unsettled. However, irrespective of that, I, I've definitely been looking forward to Midsummer. Again, fantastic trailers. They've given a sense of the plot without going into any real detail of the characters, their dynamics, uh, without any real sense of knowing exactly what happens. Only really that we know that there's going to be a huge build-up of tension and things not being as they seem and something very, very wrong. Essentially, the plot follows a group of friends who are a mixture of kind of post-grad doing PhDs etc one of whom is 
Christian, played by Jack Rayner, whose girlfriend, Danny, who is the central character, really, of the film, has suffered a, a personal grievance that we kind of find out about at the beginning of the film. And she's invited, kind of reluctantly, by Christian to come along with a group of his friends who are going to visit one of their homes in Sweden, in a remote village in the north of Sweden for the Midsommar Festival, which is a, a, which is an actual traditional festival in Sweden, but this is described as a commune. The group take this trip to Sweden and uh, things start to go from being uh, eccentric and um, full of these strange, weird traditions to to being far more sinister and and, uh, hint at the kind of strange secludedness of this this group, this commune or cult or or whatever you would describe them as and and things become stranger and stranger and the friends are increasingly embroiled in this kind of mysterious ceremony that lasts for x number of days the cast features florence Pugh as danny in the central role a british actress you may recognize her from a couple of roles including fighting with my family there's also some supporting roles from william jackson harper who you may recognise from The Good Place on Netflix if you've watched it. He seems to be a little bit typecast uh, as playing academics. And Will Poulter, British actor, is also one of the uh, one of the group who head out to the festival. Other than that, there's not a lot of familiar faces. And, and looking down the cast list, they, they, they've got a huge bill of Swedish and, and Scandinavian actors. It's interesting to note, actually, though the film is is initially seen set in America and then obviously the majority of the film is set in Sweden, but actually it was shot um, almost entirely in Hungary with, I think, some of the earlier scenes uh, in Utah in the US. I'm a little bit reluctant to discuss too much of the plot on this film. I mean, quite the opposite to Rocket Man, where, you know, you're going to know the story. It's just how it's told that's going to be interesting. This one... For example, the trailer really doesn't give too much of the plot away. I I, I don't want to give too much detail. I will say at the beginning, uh, and even even discussing the beginning, I, I I feel will give too much away. If I, it's not information that's in the trailer, so I, I'm kind of reluctant to share it. But I will say that the setup, the 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 opening few scenes, I thought were among the strongest in the film. Uh, it's a really good setup of characters and of the relationship dynamic between Danny and Christian where they're the kind of they've been in this relationship for a number of years it's sort of straining quite heavily and and Asta manages to kind of convey this very quickly and also convey uh, Christian's relationship with the other guys in the group uh, his friends and how they feel about Danny and their relationship and this is set up really really very quickly um and as I said that Danny undergoes a, a tragedy in the opening part of the film the way that that's set up, again, is really, I thought, was very, very skillfully done. I mean, it's an interesting thing that I, where I think Asta really succeeds in this is really in, it's in the details of it. I think the relationship between Christian and Danny is a little bit simplified. It's, it's very much sort of signposted in certain scenes to kind of give you an, an idea of what kind of characters they are, where, that, where they are. There's an uneasy scene at the beginning where there's almost some some gaslighting, uh, I think, from 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 the Christian character. He's he's not quite sort of an out and out abusive person, but it's it's almost it's kind of this relationship that he kind of feels forced to be in, uh, and then that's kind of reflecting on his behaviour, which is not to excuse his behaviour because 
honestly, he does come across as an absolutely massive douchebag, uh, particularly at the start of the film, and you don't really sympathise with, with him at all. As I said, it's maybe a little bit heavy-handed and could possibly have done with a little bit more exploration. One of the immediate things that I thought uh, about this film was how fantastic the soundtrack is, and that'll that'll hit you very heavily. Uh, Aster really uses sound and music and visual trickery to kind of impact you and and actually make you feel very uncomfortable, almost to uh, to the point of feeling slightly nauseated. There's quite a lot of drug use uh, in this film, and by drug use, I'm talking about hallucinogens. So, uh, you know, very early on, they're all smoking weed. There's a lot of mushroom taking, and they constantly sort of seem to be taking these like trippy substances that, that this commune uh, creates uh, and and the effects that as to use a camera trickery and these things are um, they're quite subtle and this they've just made me feel and i'm sure quite deliberately quite uncomfortable and a little bit nauseous there's there's a shot fairly early on in the film basically they're driving to the festival and Asta has this thing where he's the cameras is basically upside down going under this banner and then it spins all the way around and I just I found that shot really nauseating, and that's not something that normally happens to me in the cinema. I know some people said similar things to me about about other films and, and feeling nauseous with that, but that really, really kind of sets that kind of level of discomfort. And the soundtrack again does really the same thing. There's a huge build up of kind of screechy uh, violins uh, and strings during the beginning that are just it's like daggers they they really make you feel uncomfortable and the the volume of it as well really goes up to a level that is unusual that that really starts to get uncomfortable quite deliberately i'm sure i know this is probably true of most films but i think this one in particular if you took the soundtrack out of the film if you if you watched that film with no music in it it would have almost no tension it, it just it wouldn't work it wouldn't work it would, it, it, the soundtrack really really kind of builds up this tension and then and then we'll just stop suddenly rather than settling down another area that this works is, is such the kind of juxtaposition uh, of the horror see we, the things that we associate with horror films darkness enclosed spaces that sense of being sort of trapped and pursued by things that isn't in this film there is a sense of being trapped, but it's being trapped in, in this huge expanse and outdoors. There's no kind of cage that they're kept in. You know, the point of this film is it's set in very North Scandinavia in the middle of summer during the solstice when it basically never gets dark. Whereas other horror films, it's kind of, there's almost the, the sense that when it's light, that's your reprieve. That's the kind of that's the point where you can take a breather. There's not going to be any huge scary things going on in the daytime. It's when it gets dark that's when it's going to hit the fan that's when you know people are going to start dying jumpy stuff's going to happen but but that doesn't happen in this film this is all set in wide open spaces in really bright daylight and the whole film is incredibly bright uh, everyone wears white it's all clear blue skies it's an interesting way to frame a horror film because it, it really plays with your expectations there are some elements that I, I, I thought of this that, that could have been improved upon. I think uh, it was interesting early on in the film when they get to Sweden, whenever anyone's talking Swedish, it's not subtitled. And I really think that Asta should have carried that through to the end. There's maybe a couple of points where it may be necessary to the plot. But I, I think, you know, a lot of the time what they're saying is, is so kind of strange anyway that I don't think it, it doesn't add anything to the plot. I think it would almost be better if you're just like the characters. You 
actually you don't speak Swedish, you don't know what they're saying. And, you know, you can infer sometimes, but I, I don't think there's anything that's pivotal to the plot that's said in Swedish. Um, I, and I think it just would have been more unsettling if you didn't know what they were saying. Even at the end of the film, where there's explanations to things, even then, I think it would have been better if there were no subtitles. That's my thought on it. I'd be interested to have seen it without subtitles. And then if you did speak Swedish, well, then that, that might add an extra dimension to it. It's interesting because I will say, as I said, I don't want to spoil the plot, but the overall plot, if I, if you were to jot it down in, in say, five points, is, is not unexpected. It's not particularly original. It's, it's, you've seen it before and the influences are very strong. It's interesting because I actually read a very short kind of interview piece that Empire did with, with Astor where he specifically said that he had to let go of the influence of the Wicker Man I mean, if that was his conscious decision, it doesn't work. It's it's so in there. There's so much kind of, uh, particularly sort of 1970s uh, horror influence in it, sort of hammer horror influences, just the, the setup, the plot in that sense. I, I've heard people say it's original and I, I really disagree with that. I don't think the plot is particularly original and I was not especially surprised by any of the plot if you lay it out in terms of broadly speaking what happens it's really the details where the film has its strengths it's the details of the characters interactions it's the details of the special effects it's the details of the of, of particularly the the sort of weird little things that go on it's the fabulous sort of set design it's those things that do play with your expectations uh, where the film i think really has its strengths and, and not in the plot the the actual plot i don't think is particularly strong or particularly original it's impossible not to make comparisons to The Wicker Man. And Reed that Astor said he, he let go of it as an influence is, I mean, you may try to do that, but without spoiling anything, if you come away from the film with certain key points in the plot and you don't think, hmm, Wicker Man, I'd be very surprised. This also, for me, had some of the same issues that I found with Hereditary that I didn't like very much. And in both cases, a lot of that has to do with the ending of the film. Asta has seemingly from these two films has a has a very much a desire to kind of explain everything that's happening and that by the end there's there's no kind of real mystery as to what's going on everything is very clearly explained I found that it really kind of sucked away the power of the horror film and I think a lot of the time horror films I, I know we have that kind of desire to know what's going on and what's happening uh, and have it explained but Generally, I think the horror films that kind of stay with you or stay with me anyway are the ones where things aren't explained, where you don't have a, a neat ending. You don't necessarily know whether the entire film happened in someone's head, where, whether this is kind of... I, I would use, say, The Babadook is a, is a really good example of a recent horror film in, in which it was unnerving. And by the end of the film, you don't really know what's happened. You don't know if this is someone's psychological break, if it's... Uh, if it's someone's reaction to to circumstance, or if there is something malevolent and supernatural and evil that that's going on, whereas Asta absolutely does not have that ambiguity, and for me, that impacted the the unnervingness, the uh, the the fear factor, the things that stay with you because you don't. Oh, I find I don't really think about it afterwards. I wasn't there going. Oh, I wonder about this, or why, what was the character doing there, or oh, what would I done in that situation? It, it had none of that to me. Where it is visually unnerving, it the sounds of it are unnerving, and the events are yes, 
obviously disturbing, but it, but it doesn't it didn't leave me thinking about the film and, and kind of dissecting it afterwards and it playing on my mind. So for me, I think that that that's actually a, a substantial pitfall of the film that I also thought was a pitfall of Hereditary. However, both these films have had a very good critical reception. So maybe that's a more subjective thing to me. Maybe you won't find that. This film is also, um, I, I believe there are reports as, you know, sort of people uh, throwing up or having to leave the cinema during it. It is an 18 rated film. It is in places very graphically gory. It's not, however, relentless through the film. It, it's not constant. It's just more that there are specific points of quite gory things happening. Maybe this is one to avoid if you're particularly squeamish. A lot of the praise of this has come from the kind of exploration of the characters and sort of saying this is a uh, one reviewer that said it was a, a, an apocalyptic breakup movie. Um, and and I, I do get that. And I think it's an interesting thing that it, a lot of it is quite focused on the particularly Danny's relationship. It's very much from her perspective. I think that that could have possibly been highlighted a little bit by just making particularly the Christian character a little bit more complex and a little bit less of a dick. But you do see how that, how that kind of comes full circle and it does have those plot elements and it does give the characters in it a lot more weight, particularly Danny. It gives, she, there's a lot more going on for her rather than just being little girl in, in distress being pursued by uh, horrible forces or, or maniacs or whatever. And she comes across as a, as a formed... Not a not a weak character, just somebody who's uh, had to go through a lot and emotionally very, very vulnerable uh, and is kind of taken uh, advantage of or, or is not treated in the best way. I like the central performances for the most part. And and yeah, I, I, as I said, I think that really the strengths of this film are in the details. Fantastic set design, an absolute kind of juxtaposition of uh, of using all these kind of incredibly symmetrical shots which are unnerving but they're not traditionally things that you would use in a horror film to unnerve somebody the sound design is fantastic the special effects are subtle and at times rather nauseating as they should be it really actually gives you that sense of having a kind of not very pleasant trip on hallucinogens and and more what that's like rather than kind of overdoing it and seeing bright colors everywhere and like i'm tripping out man i and i thought that was very effective the amount of attention to detail and design is great. I will say that I think as well, another pitfall slightly is this way, way too much blatant signposting for the plot in the film. To have it a bit it works, but this was too much and it became too kind of literal. You'd see something and be like, okay, that is literally going to happen in the film. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by that. And there's a bit too much of it, I thought. I thought that could have been a little bit of subversion in that and going oh I guess actually maybe that's what that said and oh my god I can't believe it's happening like that that's not how it was depicted but yeah everything's kind of depicted as it is in the signposting which was a bit heavy-handed overall though uh, a decent film I think despite what I found to be pitfalls in it there's enough um, originality to the film I think it's it's suitably different enough to make it definitely worth seeing Uh, it, it you know especially if you do like horror films then I would definitely go check it out. As I said, maybe a slight warning if you're very squeamish um, about uh, more graphic gore. Otherwise, definitely definitely do check it out. So just going on to the trailers, uh, I'll just focus on the trailers that I see in the cinema rather than sort of scouring IMDb for the latest things. Uh, so these will be films that are coming out pretty soon in the coming weeks. And I'll just have a slight reflection on these. So first up is Blinded by the Light. 
which is from Bendit Blight Beckham director Gurinder Chada. This is uh, set in this country, and I guess it's a kind of similar thing. It follows young British Asian guy in the 1980s, uh, kind of growing up in Thatcher's Britain, um, who wants to be a writer, isn't really accepted by his more traditional family, has you know struggles with acceptance in uh, in school and in society as a whole, and is turned on to the music of Bruce Springsteen, which is where the title of the film comes from and obviously seems to feature a, a large amount of the boss in the soundtrack. And I, the, the film looks to be a little bit cheesy. I did see this trailer a while ago. It was on uh, Bruce Springsteen's um, Instagram or Facebook page. I can't remember which, but um, popped up there. It does look a little bit cheesy. It looks maybe a little bit too uh, feel good. But I would say I, I, I probably will see this film on the basis that I am an absolutely huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I, I guess I have some, yeah, I can draw a little bit of personal relation to the fact that it's weird that Springsteen's music, you know, it's very kind of blue collar American. It's quite specific to that. But for anyone who really likes Springsteen, it is it is weird how, I, you know, I'm a, a fairly... I guess, white collar guy from middle class from Britain, but why I I resonate so much with his lyrics, despite the fact that we've had rather different uh, upbringings and experiences in life. Uh, And and so maybe from that point, you know, I I do. Yeah, I absolutely understand the appeal of Springsteen. I think if you don't understand the appeal of Springsteen, this seems like a film that may be completely lost on you. Um, But yeah, definitely go check it out. Not huge expectations, but it seems to actually have a reasonably good uh, Metacritic score. Um, the next one, saw it a couple of times last night, uh, the Lion King remake, if you will. Uh, John Favreau's kind of follow-up to the, not live action, but uh, CGI'd uh, Jungle Book that uh, was released a couple of years ago, which admittedly I didn't see. Uh, I'm just going to say it straight out. I'm not a Disney fan. I've never been a Disney fan. I didn't like Disney films as a kid. I've, I've maybe, you know, with, with the exception of some of the very old ones, like um, Snow White, Dumbo, uh, Alice in Wonderland, um Pinocchio, those kind of quite early ones I do, but definitely not 90s Disney movies. Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, The Lion King, uh, none of this appeals to me. I do quite like Pixar films. I actually only saw the original Lion King film for the first time last year. Gotta be honest, didn't do anything for me. It kind of opens with uh, Chiwetel Echifor, who's playing Scar in the film that was voiced by Jeremy Irons in the original. I mean, he's got a great voice. It's, that seems to be um, that that sort of fits in well. Again, it's interesting that the the pers- the one person who's been reused from the original cast is James L. Jones, uh, playing the same character. And um, you know, obviously, it's James L. Jones, the perfect voice for that kind of role. Um, you don't really get much of anyone else in the film uh, from a voiceover perspective. I think the thing that got me about it is, I mean, the CGI looks fantastic. These really do look like actual animals. But the trouble is, the more they look like actual animals, the weirder it becomes that they're speaking. You know, it's like watching a David Attenborough documentary, except all the animals start singing and talking, and it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think, weirdly, the the more lifelike this becomes, the weirder it is that they all speak. It, it fits more, in my opinion, with that kind of, you know, that Disney animation. It's not, it's not real, but yeah, I, I don't know. A lot of people are very excited about it, I, I gather... You know, um, Beyonce and um, Donald Glover are, are singing Elton John songs in it to take us back to Elton John, which apparently, you know, is very important for some people. Uh, I guess maybe if you're a huge fan of the original, you'll like this one. Uh, apparently, The Jungle Book was uh, pretty good. I do like John Favreau's films, but I've got to be honest, I'm probably not going to watch this. Uh, next one, uh, The Dead Don't Die. 
which is Jim Jarmusch's new film starring Bill Murray and Adam Driver as uh, sheriffs uh, in a small town during a, a zombie apocalypse, featuring Iggy Pop as uh, one of the uh, central zombies in the film. Um, the trailer looks pretty good. I, I've got to be honest, I love Jim Jarmusch. He's, he's honestly one of my favourite directors. I, I would go and see any film made by him. I know he's not everybody's cup of tea, but uh, really some of his most recent films have been, in my opinion, some of the best films of, of the last few years. I loved Patterson, an absolutely wonderful exploration of character and so real and just so incredibly lovely without ever being saccharine and only lovers left alive the uh, the fantastic exploration of the of, of the vampire mythology uh, juxtaposed in, in in modern day life uh, with tom hiddleston and tilda swinton was oh, so, so original so imaginative and and uh, i i absolutely love the film uh, dead don't die unfortunately hasn't doesn't seem to have got rave reviews uh, it reunites Jarmusch with Bill Murray who he worked on in Broken Flowers uh, and uh, Adam Driver from Patterson and Tilda Swinton again from Only Lovers Left Alive uh, and Iggy Pop from Coffee and Cigarettes this seems to feature a lot of uh, a lot of Jim Jarmusch's recent collaborators in a, in a very large cast uh, as I said unfortunately the reviews don't appear to have been fantastic for it a little bit mixed um or perhaps worse still, they're a little bit more middling rather than I think I'd be more excited if there were some people who hated it and some people who loved it. But unfortunately, the reviews seem to be kind of like, eh, it's all right, uh, which is a bit disappointing. The The trailer seems pretty funny. A lot of deadpan humor, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of sort of pastiche to uh, to classic zombie movies and Night of the Living Dead and uh, George A. Romero and, and, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to going and seeing it. I hope to be standing out from the critics and saying I really enjoyed it, but uh, we shall wait and see. The last trailer I saw was for Vita and Virginia, and I've got to be honest, I wasn't paying that much attention to the content of this trailer because the trailer itself was absolutely terrible. This awful kind of uh, Muzak playing in the background over sort of badly squished together scenes and just kind of one of those trailers again where it's like oh thanks I don't even need to see the film because you look like you put the entire film condensed into two minutes and presented it to me and it doesn't look very good what I spent more time focusing on in the trailer was I couldn't I don't know if it's I don't know if it, what it was being shot on but it just the frames per second rate that it was filmed on seemed bizarre it didn't look like a film it looked like a kind of uh, fairly cheap daytime TV or sort of an ITV drama or something. It didn't look like a. It didn't look like a film. Um, it apparently explores the relationship between uh, a love affair between a socialite uh, Vita Sackwell West and, of course, the literary icon Virginia Woolf. Stars Jim Arterton and Elizabeth Debicki. I've got to be honest. Probably not going to bother with it. It doesn't look great. Haven't had particularly good reviews. And yeah, I think if if it looks as kind of cheap as the trailer suggests, I, I think it would just be more visually annoying than anything else. Uh, but those are the trailers. Um, of course, at least a few of those I'll uh, be going to see so I can compare back to the trailer and uh, tell you if everything lived up to my expectations or if I was pleasantly surprised or horribly disappointed. Well, thanks very much for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope I haven't rambled too much. I can't absolutely guarantee when I'll be coming back and rating next week, but uh, one film that I'm very much hoping to see is Spider-Man Far From Home. I am absolutely unapologetic uh, for the fact that I uh, absolutely adore the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, 
pretty much all of them with a few exceptions uh, and definitely everything that's been released in the last few years has not disappointed uh, so i'm hoping this will be the same uh reviews seem pretty good for it uh pretty excited got a, a pal of mine who we tend to go and see all the marvel films together so hopefully fit that in next week and i'll report back on it i can't imagine my opinion is going to skew your decision to go and see that one way or the other uh if you're into the mcu you're probably pretty invested by this point and if you haven't bothered then i can't imagine why you're going to start now at the end so i'll still be able to uh, give some feedback on that at least one other film possibly two i hope you've enjoyed it um if you want to leave any feedback that's always more than welcome any uh, any thoughts on my own particular critiques of the film if you think i i definitely missed the point on something always happy to engage I'd like to thank Curzon Cinemas, which is primarily where I am watching every single film that I'll be reviewing. Uh, have their fantastic cult membership bundle, which is £350 for an entire year's worth of cinema. And if you go as often as I, that works out pretty well. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I've been Edward James Beasley, and I'll catch you next time.